Well, continuing our verse-by-verse study, chapter-by-chapter study of the book of Revelation, we are in Revelation chapter 13. Revelation chapter 13. As we embarked on the third and major section of the book of Revelation, which began in chapter 6, we, of course, encountered the seven-sealed book. And as the seals were broken, we got to the seventh seal, which ushered in seven trumpets. And as those seven trumpets were blown, we finally get to the seventh trumpet, which introduces, is of course going to introduce the seven uh, bowls of God's judgment, but it also introduces something that may not be as conspicuously evident, but is still there, are seven personages. The occasion of the seventh trumpet uh, uh, blowing involves uh, an introduction, an overview, sort of a recap uh, series of chapters, chapters uh, 10, 11, and 12, 13, 14 are sort of an interlude, an explanatory interlude of an overview of what's going on. It has introduced seven personages. The woman, which we talked about last time. The man-child, the woman brings forth. And the red dragon, clearly identified as Satan in, in chapter 12, verse 9. Michael the archangel and the remnant of Israel. And uh, there are two left to make the complete seven. These two that we're going to get, get introduced to now are in uh, chapter 13. So let's just jump in. Uh, I might mention in chapter 13, I want you to notice there are two people. Two people. Uh, so many of us constantly talk about this coming world leader. And I prefer to use that term rather than the common one, because the common one tends to be a little misleading in ways. We speak of the Antichrist. Literature for 1900 years, even secular literature is full of this uh, t- uh, comments and, and, and expectation of a uh, person called the Antichrist. Well, the first thing to understand is that there are two people. It's a duet. And that's very clear in this particular chapter. Uh, one of the, one of the uh, puzzling enigmas about this coming world leader, is he a Gentile or is he a Jew? You can make a list of passages which imply that he's a Gentile. And you can also make a list of passages which clearly indicate, or suggest at least, that he's Jewish. And therein lies one of the many controversies surrounding these passages. Well, one of the first things to recognize that may help resolve this is that there are two guys, not one. And so I mentioned that right up front as we jump in. The the first um, ten verses are of this particular person called here in chapter 13, The Beast sometimes known as the first beast of Revelation 13. The two guys together, if you assemble all the references, there are 33 different titles alluded to, alluding to these two guys in the Old Testament alone and 13 in the New. And so uh, uh, many, of these, many of these titles will be very familiar to you if you're a serious student. Some of them uh, are a little more subtle. But in any case, one other thing I might mention. Uh, since I opened the subject, I should probably deal with it. That's this whole term, the Antichrist. The Antichrist. Now, that has such a charged emotional content to it, I prefer to avoid it. Because the Antichrist sounds sinister, evil, and so forth. And he certainly is, don't misunderstand me. But that term masks his attractiveness. This is not some guy the world is going to fear. This is some guy the world is going to embrace with joy with excitement, with a a sense of cosmic fulfillment. And so the idea of Antichrist is is, is a strange term for that. That's why I've just 
tend to use personally the term the coming world leader because it's more neutral in that regard. The term antichrist itself is misleading. It's, it comes from the Greek. The word anti in the Greek means over and against. And it can mean an adversarial situation. It can also mean in the place of. And that's its meaning here. Someone who puts himself in the place of Christ. When you use the term antichrist, it sounds like an adversary, that he's an equal antagonist opposing him. Well, first of all, he's not equal at all. He's going to get wiped out by the breath of the Lord's mouth. But also the term, even though he obviously is against Christ, the term really is intended to connote the idea he, is, he presents himself in the place of Christ. The anti-term comes from the Greek. The Latin equivalent to that term is the term vicar, the substitute for, in place of. And of course there is one on the face of the earth that for many centuries has proudly emblazoned that title on his vestments, the vicar of Christ, namely the Pope. Many, many centuries the Pope was viewed as the Antichrist. It may surprise you to learn that uh, uh, the Pope, I don't believe the Pope is the Antichrist in the sense most people think, think of him that way. We're going to deal with that in chapter 17, when we get there, in ways that I'm sure will be guaranteed, we'll have something to offend everyone when we get into that material. For that reason, it's interesting that the term Antichrist shows up in the Bible in John's epistles. His first and second epistles use the term Antichrist, but it's used in a different way. He speaks of the spirit of Antichrist as being already present. The spirit of Antichrist is what John uses. It intrigues me that in the book of Revelation, penned by John, he never uses that term. He uses several other terms, as we'll see. But the, it's interesting that uh, Paul, in his epistles, uses different terms. The son of perdition, and uh, so forth. But uh, so, that, as I say, there's 33 labels you can choose from. By popular uh, usage, we tend to use the term Antichrist, and it won't go away. But I want us to at least be sensitive to the shortcomings of that particular label. And uh, let's just move on. Chapter uh, 13, verse 1. John says, And I stood upon the sand of the sea, and saw a beast rise up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and upon his horns ten crowns. And upon his heads, the name of blasphemy. Now the word here, the beast, is therion. We encountered the word, the King James uses the term beast in chapter 4. Which it's a different, uh, the word there is zoa, living creature. Here the word is in fact therion in the Greek. It is what we think of as a beast. Someone that's frightening, terrible, and in fact loathsome. So, so it's a, a beast of prey, if you will. And uh, in contrast to the term uh, living creature, as it should have been translated in uh, chapter 4 and 5. The word beast here appears, this is interesting to me, 36 times. That's 6 squared. 6 times 6 is 36. It intrigues me that the term occurs 36 times. I mentioned that that's a big deal, but as you get into this, as the study, you begin to realize there are subtleties of design that manifest its supernatural origin. And that's the only reason I bring that up. Now, this particular beast, it's a vision but is seen as coming out of the sea. 
And if you've done uh, uh, if you've done your homework in Old Testament prophecy, you know that the sea is very often used as an idiom for the nations. All the, the, the wicked are like the troubled sea when it cannot rest, whose waters cast up mire and dirt, and on and on. You could quote probably a dozen passages where the sea and its turmoil is used uh, as a biblical idiom for the nations or the heathen or, or the, 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 world, the Gentile world at large. In contrast to Eretz Israel, the earth, and the second beast comes up out of the earth, you'll see. Or st- you'll see. And so the point is that's why Many uh, commentators uh, believe that the first of these two characters is a Gentile. It comes out of the sea. That would be consistent with that view. Not conclusive, but at least it's interesting and a possibility. And it's Isaiah 57, verses 20 and 21, for those of you that want to chase down the other thing I just quoted. But there's something else we should keep in mind that is not obvious from chapter 13, but if your memory is good, you may recall when we were in chapter 11, verse 7, because there's the first time this beast is mentioned... And it says, the, it says, the beast that ascendeth out of the bottomless pit shall make war against them and shall overcome them and kill them. In other words, there's an allusion in um, Revelation chapter 11, verse 7. In fact, the first place this beast is mentioned, but it, it, it's mentioned as if you knew about him already. That he ascends out of the abuso, which, mean, which attests to some form of supernatural aspect to him. He obviously is demonically driven. In fact, there's a lot of evidence to indicate, in fact, I think it expressly says so even in this chapter, that Satan indwells him. It's one thing to be demon-possessed. It's quite another to have Satan uh, focus his personal attention on the mission. So uh, uh, we should be alert to that. Now, there's another thing that mentioned in uh, Revelation 11:7 that we're going to talk about when we get to verse 8 in chapter 13. And that's the fact that he overcomes the saints. Very strange Indication. We get that from Daniel, we get that from Revelation 11, we get that Revelation 13. And that gives us a clue to, to, uh, to a, a doctrinal issue that may surprise you. But we'll hold that off until we get to verse 8. Now, the second beast, when we get to verse 11, chapter 13, comes from the earth. I'll take it now, just while we have this in, con- in, in parallel here. Uh, so, uh, verse 11, I beheld another beast coming up out of the earth. And he had two horns like a lamb. That is, the horns are authority. He had authority like the lamb. Yet he spoke like the dragon. So apparently he manifests authority as the Messiah, and yet his, his words and doctrine and so forth are satanic. And he's a religious type leader, it would seem, and we'll develop that as we go. But from Ezekiel 28, it implies he is of the circumcision, meaning he's Jewish. In this first verse, we have these seven heads and ten horns. The crowns are on the horns, not the head. Now, it's hard to visualize us if you're trying to draw it, but bear in mind this is a vision, and the idioms there, of course, are allusions from the Old Testament. The crowns are the worship, but they derive from the authority, not their kingship. Seven heads and ten horns. This thing has echoed through the scriptures all the way through. You've seen it hundreds of times. It all derives. One of the places to start a study of this would be Daniel 7. And I think we'll have the time, so let's depart and pick up this background. We frequently study Daniel 2 and 7 because they are the unique places in the Scripture where all of Gentile history is laid out. The Bible usually talks about history through the lens of Israel. But there are two exceptions to that, Daniel 2 and Daniel 7, much studied for that reason. But in Daniel 7, we're also treated to some very special prophetic insights. 
Just as Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel 2 saw the series of four metals, gold, silver, bronze, and iron, then finally iron mixed with clay, representing the four empires from Babylon through Persia, Greece, and Rome. Likewise, in Daniel 7, Daniel sees four beasts rise up out of the sea. Again, the sea is used as the idiom or the canvas upon which this painting is painted, so to speak. Four of them come up in verse 3. The first one is like a lion in verse 4. And then in verse 5, another like a bear. And then um, 6, we have the leopard, four wings on its back. We won't take the time tonight, but if you go through those carefully, they're clearly the same empires that are Babylon, Persia, then Greece, and then Rome. In fact, Daniel is going to amplify the Greek situation, chapter 8 and chapter 11. Well, chapter 8 in such detail that when Alexander entered Jerusalem... They showed him this. He recognized himself and spared the city. So the prophecies of Daniel are have an incredible, incredible background. But let's, it's this fourth beast that interests us because this fourth beast goes in two phases. The obviously phase one was the ancient Roman Empire that broke into pieces but is, will be reassembled. In fact, is being reassembled in our day. In the last 30 years, that's been happening. But what's going to happen, looking at verse 8, Daniel says, I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them... Another little horn. In other words, there were ten horns. There's an eleventh that shows up. It's called the little horn. Before which there were three of the first horns plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were the eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things. Now I have a peculiar idiosyncrasy. As I look through the prophecies of Daniel, I look through the epistles of Paul, and I look through the writings of John in Revelation... You find, as I say, 33 titles of the Antichrist in the Old Testament, 13 in the New. But the label that I would use that comes up more often than any of them is one that's not in that list. And that is that he's always shooting off his mouth. You see it here, and it sounds like I'm being flippant, and I, I'm not really. But all through Thessalonians, the Second Thessalonians 2 chapter, and you'll see in Revelation, the Holy Spirit always points out that he has a mouth speaking great things. This guy is a real orator, but maybe far more than that. But the, uh, the point is, if I was going to give him a label, I would call him Mr. Big Mouth. But I, don't that, I know that really won't fly, especially in scholastic circles, but I'll just leave it as a, I'll, I'll leave it as a footnote. And then, of course, it's interesting that we then have the kingdom being set up and so forth. But when you get to verse 15, it's interesting how Daniel, he saw the vision. That's what we've talked about so far. But from verse 15 on, the vision gets interpreted for us. But it fascinates me that Daniel wasn't concerned about the earlier portions. It's as if he understood those. But it's interesting, starting in verse 15, I, Daniel, was grieved in my spirit in the midst of my body, and the visions of my head troubled me. And I came neared unto one of them that stood by, and asked him the truth of all this. And he told me, and made me know the interpretation of these things. These great beasts, which are four, are four kings or kingdoms. Same word in the, in the Aramaic and the Hebrew. Melech is, a, is either a king or a kingdom, depending on context. Who shall rise out of the earth. But the saints of the Most High shall take the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever and ever. And so that's, that's the final conclusion, of course. Then here, verse 19, Daniel asks questions only about the fourth beast. And I would know the truth of the fourth beast. He doesn't worry about one, two, and three. It's the fourth one. Which was diverse from all the others, exceedingly dreadful, whose teeth were of iron, its nails of bronze, which devoured broken pieces and stamped the residue with his feet. And of the ten horns that were in its head, and of the other which came up, in other words, the eleventh, and before them three fell, 
even of that horn that had eyes and a mouth that spoke very great things, here it is again, whose look was more stout than its fellows. And I beheld the same horn made war with the saints and prevailed against them. Now I want you to notice we find it here in Daniel uh, 7.21. You'll find it in Revelation 11 and Revelation 13. That this leader prevails over the saints. That should give you a problem. Because in Matthew 16, Jesus Christ promised that the gates of hell would not prevail, same word, overcome, Mikhail in the Greek, the church. And what you're going to discover is that not all saints are in the church. There are saints. There are Old Testament saints, and there are also saints in the book of Revelation that are not necessarily the church. The term elect, the term saints, is a broad term, but within that category are subcategories. That's one of, the, one of the most tragic aspects of our level of ignorance in eschatology is not ignorance of end-time prophecies, ignorance of the mystery of the church. Most people don't understand what the church is really all about. But let's move on right now. Verse 23, he said, The fourth beast shall be a fourth kingdom upon the earth, which shall be diverse from all the kingdoms, and shall devour the whole earth. The whole earth. So essentially, I wouldn't take that exhaustively, but this is a global thing, not a European thing. And it shall tread it down and break it in pieces. And the ten horns, verse 24, out of this kingdom are ten kings that shall arise. These shall arise. They're not ten that make it up. They arise out of it. And another shall rise up after them. And he shall be diverse from the first, and he shall subdue three kings. And he shall speak great words against the Most High. There it is again. This is an attribute that's more than just a descriptor. It's an identity piece. It's a very key part. And he shall wear out the saints of the Most High, and think to change the times and the laws. Why would he think to change the times and the laws? That's been tried many times in history quite unsuccessfully. And I happened to be doing my research in uh, weapons effects for a book I'm writing, and I didn't realize, I uh, thought it through, I discovered that in the Russian arsenal there are a few hundred megaton bombs. Now, most hydrogen bombs are one to four megaton. That's a very, very practical, very large uh, warhead. A hundred megaton bomb is so big, it's hard to figure out what you'd use it for. But if you do the calculations, a handful of those fired at the same time would alter the orbit of the Earth. And one wild speculation, but it's interesting, would be that the earthquake in Ezekiel 38 that God uses to intervene on behalf of Israel during the Magog invasion might cause an orbital change which will require our calendar modified. That's off the wall, but I share it with you only to stretch your imaginations as to what might be going on here. They'll think that they change the times and the laws, and they shall be given into his hand until a time times the dividing of time. This is a rhetorical way of saying three and a half years. Time is singular, times is a dual, not a plural, a dual in this case. Uh, time times the dividing of time are half. It's like saying one plus two and a half. And uh, that period of time, of course, we're going to encounter again and again and again uh, about this period of time. Most documented, it's the most documented period of time in the Bible. 
We'll come back to that when we get back to Revelation. But finishing this off, verse 26, But the judgment shall sit, and then they shall take away his dominion to consume and destroy it unto the end. And, of course, uh, it finishes up, of course, with uh, the kingdom being established. Back to Revelation, and from, with these idioms in your mind, when you count Revelation 13, first verse, And I stood upon the sand of the sea and saw a beast rise up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and upon his horns ten crowns, and upon his heads the name of blasphemy. It all ties together. There originally ten, he pulled down three, leaving seven. Seven heads, ten horns. Then it continues. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard, and his feet was like a bear, and his mouth like the mouth of a lion. Now it's interesting, those three idioms were the three idioms used by Daniel for the first three beasts. In other words, he had similarities to those. It's interesting that the order is backwards. Because Daniel was looking forward and John's looking back. But the same three idioms are there, a leopard, a bear, and a lion. But who gives him the power? It says, and the dragon gave him his power and his throne and great authority. Who's the dragon? Previous chapter, chapter 12, verse 9, says the dragon was Satan. Clearly identified. Satan empowers this guy. That means he is really powerful. He's not just a guy with charisma. He's not just a guy that is, uh, by being at the right place at the right time, and has the right backers. No, no, it's deeper than that. This guy probably will have supernatural gifts of substantial kinds. And I don't think anyone's ready for that. Verse 3, And I saw one of his heads, as though it were wounded to the death, and his deadly wound was healed, and all the world wondered after the beast. Now, we come to this whole controversy about his head wound. All through the scripture, kings and kingdoms are used as synonyms. And it's pretty easy in the Old Testament to understand it. In the New Testament, again, we have this beast. Is it a person or is it an organization? The answer is probably both. It's probably both. And yet, when you have a head wound, and as you read the text, most scholars are convinced that it is, whatever else it also is, it's a person. Because he has a head wound and is apparently killed. I'm among those that believe he's not really killed. Because he's going to end up being healed. And the world's going to be flabbergasted when he's resurrected. And I believe because only Jesus Christ has the keys of hell and of death, that either God gives him some kind of special permission, or more likely, it is a fraud. It is one of Satan's counterfeits. Books are filled with scholars, theologians, arguing that point, but it's really academic because even if it is a counterfeit, it's a perfect one in the sense that it deceives everybody. No one can deceive like Satan can deceive. And if he wants a resurrection, he can fabricate a resurrection that's so flawless that it would fool any of us, so that the technicality is probably a moot point in a sense. But this head wound is so important that it's used as an identity three times in this chapter alone. So it becomes not just an event that occurs, so to speak, but it becomes a major part of his identity. He has a head wound. Verse 4, it says, And they worshipped the dragon, that is Satan, which gave power unto the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like unto the beast? Who is able to make war with him? Now, let's remember where the beast came from. Chapter 11, verse 7, and also we'll discover again in chapter 17, verse 8, the beast comes out of the abuso. 
So there clearly is a major supernatural dimension to him in the first place. He's not just some political figure that might be prominent on the horizon. I wouldn't wait, for other reasons I'll come to, I wouldn't waste your time trying to guess who he is. Verse 5. And there was given unto him, here it is again, a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies. See, there again, it's not only a fact that's true, it's almost another one of these identities, because it comes up so frequently. And power was given unto him to continue forty and two months. The seventieth week of Daniel is split into two halves, three and a half years each. Each half of that period of time is labeled every conceivable way the Holy Spirit could find. It's labeled half a week. It's labeled three and a half years. It's labeled time times the dividing of time, a rhetorical way of saying the same thing. It's called 42 months. And it's called 1260 days. 42 times 30 is, you know, okay? See, so the point is, the Holy Spirit did everything but put it in hours and minutes for you. So, and I believe he did that because he wants us to understand that's not symbolic or allegorical. It's a literal period of time. That seven-year period, especially the last half of that seven-year period, is the most documented period of time in the entire Bible. And the Lord apparently has real good reason for that. Verse 6. And he opened his mouth, here it is again, in blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle and them that dwell in heaven. And of course, the pinnacle of his blasphemy is when he actually sets up his own image in the Holy of Holies in the temple in Jerusalem to be worshipped. And that egregious act has a technical term. It's called the abomination of desolation. I think we've spoken on it many times. It happened uh, in 167 B.C. as a historical marker, if you will. Two centuries later, Jesus alludes to it, but yet future, as the trigger point for the most important period in end-time prophecy, when four disciples come to him privately for that confidential briefing recorded in Matthew 24 and 25, Luke 21 and 22, and Mark 13 and 14, the so-called Olivet Discourse. The key to that entire passage is this event called the Abomination of Desolation, which is Jesus' way of pointing you back to Daniel 9 and, and, and 12 and other allusions in the book of Daniel that detail that. A very specific event yet to happen. It requires a temple to happen. The temple in Jerusalem was destroyed in 70 A.D. under conditions of war, and it, there was no opportunity there for it to be desecrated. It was taken apart, literally. It was not used as a place for false worship. And that's exactly what the abomination of desolation implies. The abomination means idol worship. The abomination of desolation is the ultimate form, the most offensive form of idol worship, namely putting an idol in the most sacred spot on the planet Earth. In Jerusalem, in the temple precincts, specifically in the temple nows, in fact, in the Holy of Holies. And Antiochus IV did that back then. The cleansing of the, the temple from that incident is what the Jews celebrate to this very day called Hanukkah. And even Hanukkah is authenticated in the New Testament in John chapter 10, verse 22. But moving on. It's interesting that he blasphemes against God, yes, against God's name, dumb move guy, and his tabernacle or temple. But it, he also blasphemes against somebody else that I think is kind of interesting. And them that dwell in heaven. Now you can't build doctrine from this verse, but for those of us that understand from other passages that the church will be in heaven while this is going on, it's interesting that he may, the Antichrist makes allusions to us in heaven. He blasphemed against them that dwell in heaven. 
That's an interesting phrase. Verse 7, And it was given unto him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. There it is again. And power was given over him over all kindreds, tongues, and nations. Now this overcoming the saints is mentioned, we saw in Daniel 7.21. It's mentioned in Daniel chapter 8, verse 12 and 24. It's mentioned in Daniel 11.31 and Revelation 11.7. And as you all recall at Caesarea Philippi, in response to Peter's remarkable declaration of faith, Who do you say that I am? Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And uh, Jesus goes on then to explain that uh, he's upon this, that is declaration of faith, he's going to build the church. A play on words with Petra and Peter, but if you understand the Greek uh, structure of that, he's not referring to Peter, he's referring to what he did from the cases of the words. But anyway, the point is, he says, and the gates of hell shall not prevail over it. Which is apparently, this is one of those places that a skeptic would say, well, there's a contradiction in the Bible. Because in Daniel 7, Daniel 8 twice, and Daniel 11, and Revelation 11, 7, and 13, 8, we have a contradiction to what Jesus said in Matthew 16. No. The contradiction only occurs if you assume that all saints and elect are equivalent to the church. Maybe the church is distinct. And it's in this manner, I'd like you to pause with me one more time. We've probably done this before, I realize, but uh, let's go to Matthew 11. Jesus is speaking, and... uh, the context here has to be concerned about John the Baptist. In verse 11 of chapter 11, Jesus makes an interesting but a very emphatic remark. He says, Verily I say unto you, Among them that are born of women, there hath not risen a greater than John the Baptist. Notwithstanding, he that is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. That's all in one verse. That's pretty breathtaking. Of all them that are born of women, there hath not risen a greater than John the Baptist. Now, obviously, Jesus is accepting himself, I infer. But the point is, that's quite a statement. In the sweep of that statement would be Noah, Moses, Abraham. Wow, that's quite a statement. And I believe Jesus says what he means and means what he says. But about the time you swallow that and understand it, you get to the next phrase. He adds without catching his breath, notwithstanding that he that is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. So whatever Jesus means at this moment by that phrase, it excludes John the Baptist. Does that mean John the Baptist is not saved? Hardly. And yet, it's a clue that not everyone has the same exact destiny. And this leads to a whole study that I encourage you to take on. And that is the, the significance of the body of Christ, the mystery of the church. So, we've talked about that before in several of the chapters, but I throw that out to encourage you to take a serious study of the origin, mission, and destiny of Israel in contrast to the origin, mystery, and destiny of the church. Very distinct, very different. But let's move on then to verse 8. And all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him whose names are not written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. In other words, the distinction gets very, very clear. You're not going to have any agnostics or atheists here. Either you're worshiping Christ under penalty of death, or you will be giving your worship to this incredible personage that I call the coming world leader. Now, them that dwell upon the earth, you need to be conscious, I'm sure you are by now, that that's a very specific code phrase, in a sense, of the book of Revelation. You and I should not be dwelling on the earth. Our citizenship is in heaven. The term there are those that dwell 
that are embedded in, that are that dwell upon the earth, the cosmos, the world. And there are many. You can do a whole study of that. I'll leave that up to you. We'll move on. Verse nine: If any man have an ear, let him hear. He that leadeth into captivity shall go into captivity. He that killeth with the sword must be killed with the sword. Here is the patience and faith of the saints. Interesting phrase. If any man have an ear, let him hear. That's all of us, huh? Echoes, of course, from chapters 2 and 3 in a sense. But it's interesting. We've been through six of these personages. We're about to get to the seventh. And if you know the pattern in Revelation, every time there's a group of seven, there's six and then a parenthesis, a little remark or a couple of chapters, something, before the seventh. There's always six, a break, and the seventh. And we even have it here, subtly placed, if you will, but verse 9 and 10 are sort of a, uh, a footnote or a, an aside remark before getting to verse 11. Verse 11, And I beheld another beast coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb and spoke like a dragon. Horns are authority, has the authority, authority or dominion, and um, he spoke like a dragon. Now this particular beast is called here another beast, but... We're going to find, subsequent to this passage, this particular guy is spoken of as the false prophet. And uh, when you get to uh, chapter 16, verse 13, chapter 19, verse 20, and chapter 20, verse 10, you'll discover it'll speak of the beast and the false prophet. This duet from now on will be talked as the beast, referring to the first beast of chapter 13, and the false prophet. The false prophet is the implied label here in verse 11 through 18. Verse 12. And he exerciseth all the power or authority of the first beast before him, and causeth the earth and them which dwell therein to worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. Again, you see this whose deadly wound was healed is the identity of the beast he's talking about. In other words, that's his way of discriminating who this first beast was. So it's not an incidental event, it's a major identifier. The second guy exercises all the power and authority of the first guy. The first guy is generally viewed by most commentators as a major global political ruler. And the second guy is sort of his John the Baptist, or his promoter, but in a religious context. So if you think of a political leader on the one hand and a religious leader as a sidekick, that's the general impression most commentators have of this duet. And many writers recognizing that Satan is behind them both, and that Satan's ambition, we learned uh, from Isaiah 14 and also Ezekiel 28, Satan's ambition is to be worshipped like the Most High. His ambition is to be like God. Drawing upon that perspective, if you take Satan and his counterfeit Messiah and his counterfeit Holy Spirit guy, if you will, you have what some writers call the Satanic Trinity. It's almost as if Satan, the first and second beast, the three of them together constitute a counterfeit trinity. At least in roles, in a sense, they match the trinity as revealed in the Old and New Testaments. Or so it seems. So let's move on. Now, verse 13. And he doeth great wonders, so that he maketh fire to come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men. That's pretty wild. Now, you can sort of dismiss that and say, well, that just means you can push buttons and send missiles. Maybe. But I think the passage is intentionally presenting the picture that he has supernatural power. He doeth great wonders. The same term that's used there is the term that's used for miracles in the Gospels. 
So they make a fire to come down from heaven on the earth. It seems as if he is mimicking the miracles of the two witnesses, the two prophets of God of chapter 11. Remember those two prophets of God in chapter 11 had four distinct powers. Call down fire from heaven, shut the heavens so it wouldn't rain, turn water into blood, and bring in plagues and such. Two of those powers were unique to Elijah, two of them unique to Moses, which we've reviewed. But the point is, it's as if he is attempting to simulate or equalize by doing equivalent kinds of things. This is exactly what happened, if you recall, in Exodus 7. You may recall that when Moses was before Pharaoh, we all remember the rather dramatic uh, things Moses could do, but let's not forget the equal, almost equally dramatic things that the two priests of Pharaoh did. They also turned their staves into snakes. And you may recall, most people presume when they read that, they indulged in some kind of parlor trick. There are those, though, that believe it was not just parlor tricks. These people had bona fide occultic powers. Theologians will argue about that for a long time. But it's interesting that in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 8, we have the names of those two guys. You don't find those in the Old Testament, but somehow Timothy knew who they were. Janice and Jambres, these two guys. And makes an allusion to them. Now let's take a look at that. It might be instructive. 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy 3, 8. Now as Janice and Jambres withstood Moses... So do these also resist the truth. Men of corrupt minds reprobate concerning the faith, but they shall proceed no further, for their folly shall be manifest unto all men, as theirs also was. In other words, these two high priests of Pharaoh opposed Moses. And what's interesting, it wasn't a parlor trick that was exposed. Moses' snake ate the other two. And that's as if to demonstrate that both uh, supernatural events, and yet, obviously, Moses, they recognize the significance of that themselves. They're terrified to realize that Moses' power, if you will, was superior to theirs. Now, obviously, the other thing that um, we have in Second Thessalonians chapter 2, we have the, uh, the craft and deceit of the Antichrist emphasized. It's interesting to remember, by the way, that it was prophecy, not miracles, that was Jesus' primary evidence. We don't ascribe Jesus Christ as the Son of God just because of the miracles. That's an important point, by the way. And in Matthew chapter 11, first half a dozen verses, that's become very clear. What's, the reason we recognize Jesus Christ's deity is because he fulfilled prophecy. Because only God, the Father, knows the beginning from the end. The end from the beginning. Okay, verse 14. Now this guy continues, and he, he, and he deceiveth them that dwell on the earth by the means of those miracles which he had the power to do in the sight of the beast, saying to them that dwell on the earth that they should make an image to the beast which had the wound by a sword and did live. So it's the second guy, the second beast, the false prophet as he's later called, that does these miracles. I'm not saying he's the only one that does the miracles, but recognize that he has miraculous powers. There are some people that conjecture, and I, I share this with you only to keep your horizons as broad. There's two kinds of things that militate against us uh, understanding. One is that we don't do our homework and even read it. But then there's also a risk as we read it again and again and again and read the books that our horizons may come too narrow, too myopic. There are some people that suspect 
that this leadership may have the apparent benefit of an alien connection. There's some people that suspect that maybe the packaging of Satan's deceit is in the form of really advanced technologies, that is in the form of some kind of communication with extraterrestrial intelligence. These are just speculations. You can build from these speculations all kinds of scenarios and so forth, and I won't go that far. But I share that with you to recognize that the New Agers and uh, Satan's world itself will have very, very fancy packaging. Satan's world is never short on packaging. It will be in terms uh, that will be obviously very contemporary at the time. But the goal of it is deceit. It's interesting, there are Christians who have done serious research on the whole UFO picture. Bill Allner's one, there's several other books, I haven't put a bibliography together, I probably should one of these times for the newsletter, but the point is, there are Christians that have done extensive research on the emergence of more and more UFO phenomena. What's interesting as you get into this is the discovery that everyone that's involved, everyone that certainly that has seen a UFO, certainly those that claim to have been abducted, all have had prior involvements with the occult. And near as the evidence uh, seems to indicate that these things are on the one hand physical in a sense because they leave traces, and yet on the other hand they are paraphysical because they violate physical laws, making right angle turns at high speeds, all that sort of thing. And the only uh, conclusion that one can come to is that they're demonic. And that is also exemplified by the message they carry, which is universally the same and universally anti-biblical. And so for that reason, it's an easy uh, position to come to. But uh, we should not be surprised uh, if there's more and more of this kind of thing going to continue in future years. I can remember so vividly when I was in Walter Martin's board of directors. He was uh, one of the greatest apologists uh, alive at the time, certainly the greatest expert on comparative religions in America. And he was an expert in a number of areas of Christian doctrine. But he would love to get into the UFO picture because he had his views. And uh, we used to just hope that when he got in the question and answer period after his presentations that somebody wouldn't ask a question about UFOs because we pleaded with him to leave that area alone because we felt it would discredit the ministry that he uniquely had been called to. But if given half a chance, he would always talk about men's hearts failing them for fear for the things which will come upon the earth. And he'd always gesture with his hand like the saucer was landing. And we'd all stand in the back and wince and hope that we'd get off that subject. But it's interesting, saying to them that dwell on the earth that they should make an image to this beast... And then there's the identity, which had the wound by a sword and did live. This wound by the sword, as if he's dead, rising back to life, is more than just an incident. It becomes an identity. And I'll explain why I think that's so important when we get to verse 18. But verse 15. And he had power to give life unto the image of the beast that the image of the beast should both speak and cause that as many as would not worship the beast should be killed. This is one of the reasons that many people see Daniel chapter 3 as a foreshadowing of the end times. You may recall in Daniel chapter 2, well in Daniel chapter 1, Daniel and his three friends were deported as teenagers in the first captivity, the first deportation of Babylon by Nebuchadnezzar. These four young men were taken to Babylon, put through postgraduate school to serve at court. 
And you may recall, Nebuchadnezzar had his famous dream that troubled him, and Daniel came forth with his three friends at the, in a dramatic way and interpreted that dream for them, when all the wise men of Babylon couldn't cut it. In fact, they were given an execution order, but Daniel saved their bacon by... Um, that's a bad expression for a good Jewish young boy, but anyway... Uh, <laughs> sorry about that, Daniel. By interpreting the dream. Now, if you know human nature, do you think those bureaucrats were pleased... For having their life saved? No, they were upstaged before their boss. So they were going to get their revenge. In chapter 3, by then, Nebuchadnezzar's gotten on an ego trip. And he erects this gold image. Now the image this time is not from its dream, which was four different metals. It was gold, all gold. He was gold, the image was all gold. I personally suspect, this text doesn't say this, I personally suspect he was, his ego was fed and he was prompted to do this by these rivals of the Jewish advisors. And so uh, you may recall the whole, the paraphrase quickly, Daniel chapter 3. Now we've got time. We've got time. Let's go back to Daniel 3. Daniel is such fun because on the one hand it's so important and foundational. On the other hand it's so colorful. It's so colorful. Chapter 3, Nebuchadnezzar makes this image of gold. Verse 1, height was three score cubits, the breadth was six cubits. In other words, roughly nine feet wide and ninety feet high. So it probably wasn't a full man. It might have been an obelisk with a man on it or something. That's our speculation. Obviously, though, idiomatically, spoke is a fulfillment in Nebuchadnezzar's mind of his dream. Then he puts together and brings all the advisors in and all the rulers for the dedication of this image. Then verse 5, we have Nebuchadnezzar's ragtime band. We've got all that time to hear the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the sackbut, the psaltery, the dulcimer, and all kinds of music fall down and worship the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar, the king, has set up. And here's verse 6. And whosoever falls not down and worshipeth shall the same hour be cast into the midst of the burning, fiery furnace. By the way, they have found those furnaces. They found furnaces of that type. We did a CBS special, you may recall, primetime TV special on this whole bit and the recent uh, scientific and archaeological discoveries supporting this. But let's move on here. And when the people heard all this music, all people and nations and languages, this wasn't just Babylonians, this was all that he ruled over, fell down and worshipped the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Now, at that time, certain Chaldeans came near, accused the Jews, and said, Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever, which is a greeting. Thou, O king, hast made a decree that every man that shall hear, verse 10, the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the sackbut, the psaltery, the dulcimer, all kinds of music, shall fall down and worship the golden image, and whosoever it falls not down and worship, that he should be put in the midst of the fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom thou hast set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, these men, O king, have not regarded thee, they serve not thy gods, nor worship the golden image which thou hast set up. And of course, in his rage and fury, commanded to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Now, he's going to give them one more, time, one more chance. And he brought these men to the king, and, and I love this scene, this is great. Nebuchadnezzar spoke and said unto them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, do not ye serve my gods, nor worship the golden image which I have set up? Now, if ye be ready that at that time ye hear the sound of all these different things, uh, to fall down and worship the image which I have made, well, in other words, no problem. We'll, we'll let bygones be bygones. No problem. Eh? But if ye worship not, ye shall be cast the same hour into the midst of the burning fiery furnace. And who is that God that shall deliver you out of my hand? Watch this. He says, no. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we are not careful to answer thee 
In fact, the word really means we have no need to answer you in this matter. If it be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of thine hand, O king. But if not, be it known unto thee, O king, that we will not serve thy gods, nor worship the golden image that thou hast set up. Well, Nebuchadnezzar then really got upset, commanded that they should heat the furnace seven times more than was normal, and he commanded the most mighty men that were in his army, this is bad duty, guys, to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them in the furnace, and then these men were bound in their coats, their stockings, and their turbans, and other garments, and were cast in the midst of the burning fire furnace. And therefore, because the commandment was urgent, I was there in a hurry, Haste makes waste, guys. These guys got wasted because they got hasted. The flame of the fire slew those men that took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell down, bound in the, in the midst of the burning fiery furnace. And Nebuchadnezzar, the king, was astounded. And he rose up in haste and spoke and said unto his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the midst of the fire? And he answered and said unto the king, True, O king. He answered, And lo, I see four men loose, walking in the midst of the fire, and they have no hurt. And the form of the fourth is like a son of God. Wild. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the mouth of the burning fiery furnace and spoke and said, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, ye servants of the Most High God. Interesting phrase for Nebuchadnezzar to use. Came forth, and then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came forth from the midst of the fire, and the princes and governors and captains of the king's counselors gathered together, saw these men whose bodies the fire had no power, uh, upon whose uh, bodies it had no power, nor was a hair of their head singed, neither were their coats changed, nor the smell of fire had passed on them. But then Nebuchadnezzar spoke and said, Get this, blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel, or his messenger, and delivered his servants who trusted in him, and hath changed the king's word, and yielded their bodies, that they might not serve nor worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I make a decree that every people, nation, and language who speak anything amiss against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be cut in pieces, and their houses shall be made a refuse heap, because there is no other God that can deliver after this sort. And the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. Now it may surprise you, that's of course the famous story of Daniel 3. Daniel 4 is a chapter written by Nebuchadnezzar. And it was posted throughout the world It's his testimony of how he really came to know the God of Daniel. And I personally expect, when I get to heaven, to see Nebuchadnezzar there. However, in chapter 3, Nebuchadnezzar is certainly in the role or the idiomatic position of this world leader. And indeed, in chapter 3, he makes an image. And it's interesting that it's six cubits wide and 60 cubits high. One doesn't take a lot of imagination to see the role of the sixes there. It's interesting that he forces its worship under penalty of death. You see the analogy of this building. It's interesting that in the scripture, a fiery furnace, fire, is used as an idiom of the tribulation, the great tribulation. There are many passages in Jeremiah and elsewhere that does that. So many people recognize the possibility that Nebuchadnezzar may be, in a sense, a type or foreshadowing or a model of the Antichrist. That this image that gets set up is an anticipation of the image of Revelation 13. That the Hebrew young men that are preserved through the fire 
are idiomatic of the 144,000 that will be preserved miraculously through this period of testimony. Everybody sees that. I'll tell you what most people don't notice. Where was Daniel? Everybody knows the story of Daniel 3. And yet it's interesting how few people stop to ask the question, where's Daniel in the story? Now, obviously, if Daniel was around, do you think these enemies would have missed the chance to accuse him too? Hardly. Well, maybe Daniel worshipped the image. Not if you know anything about Daniel. Hardly. The answer is just conjectural, but most scholars accept the view that Daniel was very senior and probably absent on an affair of state, doing some mission for the king. In fact, it was his absence that probably gave opportunity for the enemies to accuse his three associates. But if that's true, it's kind of interesting because if Nebuchadnezzar is the Antichrist and these three young men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, are idiomatic of the, of the Jews preserved through the tribulation, then is it possible, just to conjecture, is Daniel idiomatic of the church, which is not protected through but removed prior to the whole situation? In terms of the idioms of the Old Testament, or what's called typology, uh, you never make doctrine from that, but it is illustrative and provocative, so I share that with you. But let's get back then to uh, verse 16. Verse 15, he, he made this image that should both move and speak. Now this image then, uh, you know, by modern technology wouldn't surprise us, obviously. And causes many as should not worship the image to be killed. Okay, we've got that through. Verse 16, and he causeth all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and bond, like everybody, to receive a mark in their right hand or in their foreheads. The mark here is a karagma in the Greek. It's a brand or a seal. It incidentally, to a Jew, was illegal. It's expressly prohibited in Leviticus 19.28, Leviticus 21.5, Deuteronomy 14.1, Isaiah 49.16, and uh, it probably echoes Ezekiel 9.4 and Ezekiel 13.9 and 16. The point is, there's a seal, a mark, on their forehead or their right hand. Now, this particular passage that follows, the next few verses, people who know nothing else about Bible prophecy have heard some conjecture about what this is all about. And I'll tell you candidly, I believe most of the conjectures, I'm familiar with most of them, are wrong. And I'll show you why. Verse 17, that no man might buy or sell save he had the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. Now, first of all, you all, I think everybody has recognized that technology has made this possible today. The world is increasingly getting dependent on electronic transactions of various kinds. Not only cashless society, but checklist societies, etc. The idea of smart cards, the idea of chips, even chips embedded under the skin, is technology commonly used today. You can take a microchip and put it in a, in a small capsule and track where it goes. It's typically done for cattle so you can measure its weight gain and determine breeding practices and so forth. They also put things like this in shipments in large warehouses because it's a fast way to confer transfer of goods. You can take a chip like this and track it from satellite. The certain agencies of the government purchase parts from some corporations I'm familiar with that can be installed on the inside of a bumper of a car, and that car can be tracked by satellite. 
And they do this with certain people that they want to keep track of. And so this idea of electronics implementing this kind of thing is, of course, the subject of a lot of articles. So I don't have a problem so far. But first point, let's recognize that today's world is, well, I should say the world that we're plunging quickly into is one in which it's possible, literally, that no man can buy or sell, save that he has a mark. Except here's where it gets a little complicated. Or the name of the beast, or the number of his name. I want you to notice it's not your number that's talked about here, it's his all these ideas that they can embed a personal ID code in a chip on your hand or forehead is, I'm not disparaging that, indeed they may try to do that. That is not the problem. Having a credit card is not the problem. Having a smart card is not the problem. The problem here is taking on deliberately his identity. It's an action that you take that is eternally irreversible. What comes out of this, of course, is that if you do what they suggest here, you cannot be saved. Heavy-duty stuff. Now, verse 18 goes further. It says, here is wisdom. And by the way, I don't believe this is written to you and I. It's written to the people who are going to face this. But let's move on. Let him that hath understanding count the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man. His number is six hundred, threescore, and six. Now this number has been studied ten thousand different ways. If you take six squared, as we had before, that's thirty-six. That's an intensification of the number six. Yes, thirty-six. If you add up all the numbers to thirty-six, you get six hundred and sixty-six. So clearly this is a way of amplifying to the extreme, whatever the number of six means. What is the number of six? The number of six, of course, is the number of man. The Sabbath was made for man, six days plus one. Goliath, who was six cubits high, had a six shekel spear, had six pieces of armor. Nebuchadnezzar's image was six cubits wide and sixty cubits high. He had six different instruments of music there. And you can go on and on and on. The number six represents man. Seven is perfection. Man is imperfect. One less than seventy-six. Six is the number of man. Now, you can go further it turns out that if you look at this in the Greek, you've got the th three Greek letters that make this up in the text. Well, what you see anyway, you see is the first and last letters of Christ's name with a serpent in between. If you look at that in the Septuagint or in an interlinear. A hexacosei, which is 600, a hexaconta, which is 60, and the hex, which is 6, in terms of the numerical values. Now, everybody has tried to figure out what the 666 is. Most people presume that it has to do with gametria. Now, gametria works for two languages. It works for Hebrew and Greek. In Hebrew and in Greek, the, all the letters of the alphabet have a numerical value. And that numerical value is used within their linguistic uh, practices. Hebrew has 22 letters, and they each have a numerical value. And Greek is the same, has a different number, different values, but the point is it also indulges in this kind of usage. And the ancient scribes used to check what they were doing. When they copied a page by hand, they'd add up the value of all the letters. If it added up to all the letters in the other one, they went on. If it differed, they burned the page and started over. That's why it's so incredibly accurate. They were very, very thorough in what they did. In fact, we owe them an incredible debt over the centuries for the preservation of God's Word by their faithfulness and their diligence and dedication to that kind of work. Now, 
if you're going to play around with these letters, I don't think you fool around with English. It doesn't do that. Even Latin is not a complete alphabet. It has a few letters that were used, but very awkwardly. So the point is, these issues, I believe, are, are rendered in the languages that they're transmitted, if at all. Now, it always interests me to recognize that when you look at any book on prophecy, or book of Revelation, they all claim the competent ones will all point out that the book of Revelation is in code and that every code is explained somewhere else in Scripture. And they competently point out that if you're going to really understand the book of Revelation, what you do is get a concordance and track down every word, every place it appears, and tie it together yourself. And that indeed is constructive. And they'll do that for 12 chapters and 17 verses. But when they get to verse 18 of chapter 13, what do they do? They go to Time Magazine or whatever to find out who this guy is. Suppose we decided to say that the 666 is explained within the scripture. Well, we get a concordance and we'll discover that 666 appears only twice in the scripture. There's a third time, it's actually 616, but it's, there's a textual problem. There's two times the number 666 appears in the scripture. Each time it appears as the salary of Solomon. Well, that's interesting. You could regard this as a pointer to Solomon. Now, it's very interesting that of the twelve tribes, when we got to Revelation 7, to refresh your memory, of the twelve tribes of Israel, the one tribe through which idolatry entered the land was the tribe of Dan, and therefore Dan was not listed in Revelation 7. Which king was the first king that introduced idolatry into the land? Solomon. In his later years, because of all his foreign wives, he indulged in idol worship and he went into an apostate period. Something I'm sure that is very serious. And could be this pointer is pointing towards him for that reason. The salary is mentioned each time incident to a visit of the Queen of Sheba. Now the word Sheba means covenant. The Queen of the Covenant, if you take it literally. Is it possible that there's some linkage between Solomon? Is Solomon in some sense maybe a type of the Antichrist? Is in fact the visit of the queen, does that have anything to do with the queen of Revelation 17? These are just conjectures I share with you to uh, just stir up trouble in general. You might be interested to know that the familiar sign of Judaism called the Magan David, the shield of David, has no linkage to David prior to the 14th century AD. It emerged in the Renaissance as a symbol of Judaism. Uh, you, if you visit Israel, the only early use of it you can find is at Capernaum, where it's something I'll always show you that sign. But it turns out, if you look at it carefully, it's simply a decorative symbol among a lot of others. It's not venerated at all. And it turns out that uh, this strange symbol, which has um, six sides, six points, and so forth, actually has an occultic origin. Just like the Gentiles have their occult, the Jews have their occult. And if you dig into this, you'll discover that this particular symbol was used by the occultic practitioners. I meant to bring a slide, but I have one that shows that with incantations that it was used to try to avoid miscarriages during pregnancy, but it was an occultic practice. But what's provocative about this, what it was called in ancient Israel, wasn't the shield of David. It was called, guess this, the seal of Solomon. So the six-sided, six-pointed figure that is associated with Judaism actually has its origin with Solomon and has had widespread practice in the occult. Will there surface yet future some kind together of all of this? I just really don't know. It's interesting that in masonry we find this same pattern. And we find on the Great Seal of the United States, the stars and the Great Seal are arranged in that particular occultic pattern and uh, so forth. So we, we don't have to get into that here. 
I want to show you something, though, to help dramatize this. There is only, to my knowledge, only one physical description of the Antichrist in the Bible. There is a physical description of this coming world leader. You might turn to Zechariah chapter 11. Zechariah chapter 11. Let's pick it up about verse 15. The previous 14 verses, Zechariah is talking about the true shepherd, the Messiah that's going to come. But in verses 15 through 17, he talks about a false shepherd, an idle shepherd, I-D-O-L, shepherd. Verse 15, the Lord said unto me, Take unto thee yet the instruments of a foolish shepherd. For lo, I will raise up a shepherd in the land who will not visit those that are cut off, neither shall seek the young one, nor heal that which is broken, nor feed that which standeth still. But he shall eat the flesh of the fat and tear their claws to pieces. Woe to the idle shepherd that leaveth the flock. Here again, it's a hint that he's Jewish. He leaveth the flock. The sword shall be upon his arm and upon his right eye. His arm shall be completely dried up, and his right eye shall be utterly darkened. One gets the impression that he has a head wound that leaves one arm completely dried up and one eye blinded. By the way, if you're quickly wondering if Osha Dayan, it was his left eye, so relax. I personally suspect that what's involved in Revelation 13, 18 is that people choose to take a deliberate identity with their leader. And because he has one eye darkened and one arm withered, they take that identity by taking his symbol, his mark, his insignia, or whatever, on their forehead or on their hand. See, the point is, it's not a question of funds transfer, barcodes, and all of that. I don't think. I may be wrong. I think what's involved isn't getting sucked into some economic system unknowingly. No, that's not the point. It's a decision one makes to follow this leader in lieu of the true living God. The world is dividing up. I think what's happening in the book of Revelation is that the world wants a world without the living God. And God is going to give them what they want. The world is getting increasingly desirous of ridding itself of these reactionaries, these bigots that call themselves Christians. How they will applaud the day when they're no longer trying to espouse their Puritan morality on a world that's got other things to do. And I think God is going to give them exactly what they want. And I think part of what we're going to see when the church, with all its faults, with all its failings, is removed, and the Holy Spirit, in, its, in the sense that He's dwelling in the church, is removed, the world is going to experience exactly what they want. They want a human leader, they're going to get a human leader. And all the deceit and all the corruption that that will bring. Don't misunderstand me. I think the judgments in Revelation that come are very real supernatural judgments. And yet, much of what's brought up on the mankind in the rejection of God is what they bring upon themselves. And I think this whole business of worshiping this deceiver, and he's going to then show his true color when he sets himself up to be worshipped as God, and then it all comes down in spades, as we would say. Very, very interesting time. Now, I don't think any of us have to really worry about this issue in Revelation 13. 
because I believe very sincerely that the church, its removal is a prerequisite to him being revealed. You study 2 Thessalonians 2 very carefully, and that becomes very obvious. And then it gets reconfirmed in many, many other ways. I think you and I should not waste any time trying to figure out who the 666 guy is. There could be as much as 30 years, in fact, as much as 33 years, between the rapture of the church and the beginning of the 70th week of Daniel. So that means that he might not be alive yet. Or he might be alive today somewhere. Now his acceptability to the world, we know he's, there's going to be an acceptability of the Jews because Jesus said in John 5, verse 43, I have come in my own name and you receive me not. Another will come in his name and him you will receive. The word another there is alos, not heteros. Heteros is another of a different kind. Alos is another of the same kind. His use of alos in the text implies that the one that's coming is Jewish. But the point is, he will, for whatever reasons, have acceptability to the Jews. But 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 4 says that he will exalt himself above all that is called God. Read that Allah as well as other things. I believe this unusual person is going to find acceptability not only to Israel but also to the Islamic world. To the Islamic world. Now the Shiite fundamentalists believe he's alive to do, looking for a deliverer. The Al-Mahdi, the uh, 12th Imam, they believe he's alive today, somewhere in uh, Arabia. Last seen by his followers in the year 940. And then he is said to have occulted, disappeared, to reappear at the end time. They have a whole eschatology of their own. But the, the Muslim world is looking for what we would call a Messiah. By some strange confluence of circumstance... The coming world leader is going to find acceptability to the Jews, acceptability to the Muslim world, and surprising enough, acceptability to the Christian world. And we're going to deal with that in chapter 17 as we get into this more deeply. But you and I, the good news is we and I should not waste any of our time, except maybe in an intellectual sense, trying to second-guess anything about this because it's not our issue. What is our issue? To reduce the population that's vulnerable to them by telling people about not the idle shepherd, but the true shepherd, to do our homework enough to be able to present Jesus Christ. We should be able to present Jesus Christ to our Jewish friends entirely from the Old Testament. No problem. can be done. In fact, whenever done, it would never cease to bear fruit. Most of us haven't done our homework. But our mission is not to fool around trying to second-guess the Antichrist. Our mission is to present Jesus Christ. Let's stand for a closing word of prayer. Let's bow our hearts. Father, we just praise you that before we've chosen you, you've chosen us. And we thank you, Father, that every one of us in this room right now are here by a miracle of your doing. We thank you, Father, for the gift of the redemption that's available in Jesus Christ. We thank you, Father, that's available for the asking and through no merit that we possess. We're overwhelmed as we realize that you've gone to these extremes that we might live and that you have allowed us the incredible gift of awareness of just who Jesus is and what's coming. But Father, as we view the things that are coming upon the earth, 
We would ask you, Father, by the ministry of your Holy Spirit, to help us to be more responsive to your priorities. We pray, Father, that you would increase in us that hunger, that appetite for your word, that we might just immerse ourselves in it more thoroughly, more frequently. But more, Father, that through the ministry of your Spirit, we might be better equipped to declare your truth to those that have yet to hear it. We pray, Father, that we might be effective through you, not by power nor by might, but by your Spirit, as your instruments in this world of darkness and confusion. We ask all these things, Father, that in such days as remain, we might glorify your name, that we might bear fruit to your kingdom. For we commit ourselves into your hands. In the name of Yeshua, HaMashiach, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.